Please do take your seats. If you have a Bible with you, I could invite you to turn to John chapter 4. During Lent, for those who are visiting with us, during Lent on Sunday evenings here at Windsor, we have been looking at various holy habits or spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith, not looking at all of them. But so far we have covered these, silence and solitude, fasting, reading, meditation, prayer. And then last week we looked at confession. Well, Lent is over. Uh, Easter and Good Friday has been remembered. Easter Saturday has been endured. And today, Easter Sunday, we celebrate. We celebrate new life, new beginnings, new hope. And therefore it seems so appropriate to finish this series by looking at these two spiritual disciplines, which I will try to do as quickly as I can. Uh, worship and celebration, or worship and joy. It was St. Augustine who said that a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. And I love that idea. And it's these two disciplines or holy habits which push us in that direction. Now, both of them overlap. The edges blur. Uh, and although I will deal with them separately, they are interconnected. So let's look at worship first of all. Now, worship is one of those words that means different things to different people. And one sidetrack that we often end up taking leads to lots of discussion and debate and sadly even division concerning style. So for some, worship is either traditional or it's contemporary. It's liturgical or it's spontaneous. It's structured or it's free, it's hymn or it's chorus, it's organ, it's guitar, it's drab, it's drum, it's Wesley, it's Redmond. And as a result, worship wars are not uncommon in church after church after church. And whenever you reduce worship or it becomes a stylistic issue, it then just becomes a matter of personal preference. It's incredibly subjective and therefore becomes a really great adventure in missing the point. Worship is about God. It's not about us. It's about substance, not style. It's about the engagement of our entire being with the greatness of who God is and what God has done. And if there's ever a weekend whenever our minds should be focused on the amazing activity and the amazing character of an amazing God, this is that weekend. It's often been said that we were created to worship. It's been infused into our DNA to worship. We have been constructed with this inbuilt desire to express worth to someone or something. Tozer put it like this, worship is the normal employment of moral beings. And so the question is not will we worship the question is what or who will we worship? And so the object of your worship in mind becomes the critical discovery. Here's one definition of worship. It's our response to what we value the most. What do you value the most? And if you want to discover what you value the most, you locate there the object of your worship. And here's a test you can do simply. Follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whoever or whatever is on that throne is the object of your worship. And so a simple exercise to do is just trace that trail. Commandment number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Single-minded devotion is what God requires. So we all worship. Every human being engages in this practice. But what does vary is the focus of our individual worship. Many of you already know that uh, I do like you too. And during the week, uh, I got their latest album, No Line in the Horizon. And the second song in is called Magnificent. It's a powerful song. It includes these lyrics. I was born to sing for you. I didn't have a choice but to lift you up and sing whatever song you wanted me to. I give you back my voice from the womb. You know, we don't have a choice when it comes to worship. We all do it. But the choice lies in the object of our worship. Who will we sing for? Who or what will you and I lift up? In that first of the Ten Commandments, we discover that God wants to occupy a central place in our lives. He wants to be, he deserves to be the primary focus of our worship. God seeks worship. But God not only seeks worship, he seeks worshippers. And I do want to ground what I say this evening in God's word and in a particular text. And so if you do have John chapter 4 open, I want to turn to a familiar incident where Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, encounters a reasonably irreligious, morally suspect Samaritan woman at a water dispenser. And I want to break into the story at verse 19. Now there is lots of brilliant material in the first 18 verses, but there's not time to look at those now. So let us stand together, as we often do here at Windsor, for the public reading of God's word. John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. Sir, this is the woman addressing Jesus. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Please take your seats. In verse 19... The woman's query is centered around location. Where do we go, Jesus? Where should we go to worship? Should we go to a mountain? Should we go to a temple in Jerusalem? And the answer that Jesus gave in response would have sent shockwaves through this woman and through many other people's beliefs system. Because Jesus declared that true worshippers, which is an interesting phrase in itself, Because it implies there are such a thing as untrue worshippers. But true worshippers will no longer head for a location. But they will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not about an external place. It has now become about an internal attitude. We are called to worship in this way. And before I look at that actual phrase, take a look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Because as I say, it's not just worship that God seeks, but it's worshippers. God seeks after you and me. It's one of the incredible truths of Christianity that the almighty God we have sung about, 
The creator of heaven and earth, the great I am, who was and is and is to come, he longs for, he desires for relationship with messed up, flawed human beings such as you and I. I don't fully understand that. And yet that's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Father seeks worshippers, seeks relationship. It seems from this story that whatever you've done up to this moment in time with your life doesn't rule you out of relationship with the Creator. The Father seeks worshippers, people who will express their love, who will live out, who will verbalize their devotion. And although your CV mightn't be impressive, you've had five husbands and a current live-in lover. God still craves your worship. God still seeks, pursues, longs to find people who will choose to worship him. But worshippers who worship in this particular way, in spirit and in truth. Now I know that different people have interpreted these ideas differently. And I'm not going to consider all the alternatives, I don't have time. But let me just attempt to unpack those two ideas. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And what does it mean to worship in truth? To worship in spirit, I believe, is an issue of attitude. It's an issue of the heart. Not long ago, I picked up a book by uh, Matt Redman called Inside Out Worship. The book was good, but the title was what really caught my attention because I honestly believe that that's the kind of worship and the kind of worshippers that God seeks, those who worship from the inside out. Worship that comes from the heart. Because if worship doesn't come from the heart, then we can simply end up going through the motions. And the ultimate danger of going through the motions is that chilling possibility that Jesus mentioned whenever he echoed the words of the prophet Isaiah. I find these some of the most disturbing words in all of scripture. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Worship in vain is an opposite of worship in spirit and in truth. Now, biblically, whenever we talk about the heart, and we're back to some of the thinking we did at the beginning of the year on Sunday mornings here at Windsor, we're not just talking about the physical organ that pumps blood around our bodies. The Bible heart, the true heart, includes our mind and our intellect and our will and our emotions. So heart worship engages our minds. We consider, we ponder, we reflect on what we are singing I really hope as you come to church, as we sing songs, you do reflect and ponder and consider what you are singing. That those words come from deep within your heart because you've engaged your mind in what you're actually singing rather than just your voice. It engages our conscience. We confess. We repent if necessary so that there are no barriers. There are no obstacles to our worship. We engage our will. We bring a sacrifice of praise. I choose to do this at times. I maybe don't feel like it, but I choose to do it. Despite my circumstances. And that's a hard thing to do. To make that choice in the midst of your circumstances. Many difficult circumstances, painful circumstances, hard circumstances. That you come and you choose to engage your will. And it engages our emotions. We should be stirred by God's love. 
We should be impacted by his patience, by his faithfulness. And at times, our emotions should be stirred to the point where we are broken before a holy God. I don't deserve to stand before a holy God and express my worship to him. And yet he seeks my worship. I've got to engage my emotions. To worship in spirit is to worship in honesty and integrity. This is never about singing songs. It's never about attending church. This has to go deeper. Worship in spirit goes way beyond the externals. It is possibly, it is possible, sorry, to be physically present at a worship service like this one and yet not worship God. We all know that experience. Why? Because our hearts are not in it. And there's an extra dimension to this idea that's worth considering. To worship in spirit, in other words, to worship from the heart, forces us to be real. And it also forces us to be ourselves. John 4.23 in the message. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. What did we sing earlier? Come, now is the time to worship. Now is the time to give your heart. And what's the next line? Come, Just as you are to worship. To worship in spirit is to be true to yourself. Don't fake it. Don't pretend. Be real. Why? Because God sees our hearts, folks. We can externalize our worship for everybody else, but we can't hide the content of our internal lives from an almighty God. Come as you are to worship. But as you worship in spirit, allow God to meet you. Allow God to engage your heart and change you where from the inside out. Jesus made it clear to this Samaritan woman that the location of worship is not nearly as important as the attitude of the worshippers. It's not where you worship that counts. It's how we worship. And so just two questions to leave with you. Is your worship real? And does it come from your heart? Has your heart been engaged tonight? Secondly, the Father also seeks worshippers who worship him in truth. But what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, it goes without saying that our worship must be directed to the one true God. Back to Exodus 20 and that first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. True worship is God, capital G, worship. Worship is never in truth if it's offered in any other direction. We all worship, yes, that's a natural instinct, but it's the object of our worship that determines whether our worship is in truth or not. Next, our worship must also be in response to the truth about God. Truth about who God is and what he has done. We've got to continually ensure that our minds are expanding as we search God's word to ensure that we're consistently expressing the awesomeness and the greatness of God. What we say and sing about God must be accurate. It must be in truth. Whenever we allow our understanding of God to be stretched and changed and challenged, then we can't help but worship We can't help but worship this incredible God we've been created for. And too often, I fear, and I speak into my own life here, too often we give the impression that we're far too familiar with God. That we all know all there is to know about God. That we've boxed him. That we've contained him. And therefore, our worship is stunted. 
We've lost that sense of wonder. As I say, I'm speaking into my own life here. Lost that sense of wonder. Lost that sense of awe concerning the truth about God. I know Tozer wrote so much about worship. And I love reading what he wrote. And on one occasion he penned these words. If there is one terrible disease in the church of Christ, it is that we do not see God as great as he is. We are too familiar with God. And whenever that happens, whenever we become too familiar with God, we don't worship in truth. And Tozer went on to say, fascination is another element of true worship. To be captivated and charmed and entranced. When were you last captivated? Like captivated from the depths of your being. Entranced, charmed by what you've discovered about God. Something new about God. Or do you feel you've got God sorted? Entranced with who God is and struck with astonished wonder at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God. Have I lost that? We have a big God who has revealed himself in creation and the world around us. He's revealed himself in Jesus, the fullness of God in bodily form. And he's revealed himself in his word. And when we lose that sense of awe and wonder, our worship suffers. And whenever we lose it, I think we've got to do three things. We've got to reappreciate creation, rediscover Jesus, re-engage with God's word. Then our worship will be in spirit and in truth. In that book I referred to that Matt Redmond has read about, written about worship, he talks about the importance of inhaling and exhaling in worship. And I love this idea that in worship we breathe in. We inhale the powerful revelation of God as we look at creation, as we consider Jesus, as we meditate and as we listen to God's word, and then we breathe out. We exhale with a cry of praise and devotion. I want to breathe in. I want to breathe out. We need both. Because what you and I breathe in affects what we breathe out. And so we need to be rediscovering Jesus. We need to be reappreciating creation. We need to be re-engaging with God's word. So that we're taking in in order to give out. If you have a big increasing understanding of the truth about God. If you're taking in. Then your worship will flow. It will flow out of wonder at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God that Tozer encourages us to consider. To worship God in spirit and in truth is a spiritual discipline. Why is it a spiritual discipline to worship God? Why? Because it takes an act of our will. It's a choice we make. It's a decision we take. It's a determination. I will worship you. The song we're going to sing in a moment, I will worship with all. That's a choice. It's a willing decision I take. That's why it's a discipline. As we draw this series to a close, we come to our final holy habit. Celebration and joy, which is also a choice. But how characterized by joy is your life? At this moment, you need to smile at me, okay? And look as if you're enjoying yourself. But how characterized by joy is the life of the average Christian? Henry or Harvey Cox writes this. Modern man has been pressed so hard toward useful work and rational calculation, he has all but forgotten the joy of ecstatic celebration. Are we guilty of that? Are we far too serious? Do we take ourselves far too seriously? The Christian life is or should be a life packed with joy. 
What does Paul write to the Christians at Philippi? Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. And it's that phrase, in the Lord, that is so crucial for us to grasp and wrap our minds around. And years earlier, Nehemiah told the struggling people of Israel that the joy of the Lord was their strength. You see, and I don't say this lightly, but even in the context of suffering, in the context of difficulties and struggles, we can know joy because of our relationship with God. We are in the Lord. And that influences, or that should profoundly influence our perspective on life. Richard Foster writes, or not that, sorry, I'll just quote it, True spiritual joy will permeate every aspect of our lives, from the workplace to the sanctuary. And what is it based on? based solely on our relationship with Christ. That's why we should be people of joy. Because of Jesus, we can have relationship with Almighty God, and therefore we have hope, and we have a renewed or a renewing outlook on life. We have promises. God's people are those whose lives are bordered on one side by a memory of God's acts and on the other by hope in God's promises and who along with whatever else is happening in the midst of our circumstances we should be able to say at the centre we are happy people. Could you say that this evening? Not happy in some superficial temporary passing sense but happy because this joy flows up from within. A joy that only God can give. A joy that is a segment of the fruit of the Spirit. A joy that is crafted and nurtured from deep down within you and then spills out of you. A joy that recognises that God is good. And that as Paul reminds Timothy, everything that God has created is good. A joy that is an antidote to despair. Holy delight and joy is the greatest antidote to despair and is a wellspring of genuine gratitude. The kind that starts at our toes and blasts off from our loins and diaphragm through the top of our head, flinging our arms and our eyes and our voice upward toward our good God. That is brilliant. I wish I could write like that. God is good and the life he gives us is good. There's beauty to celebrate. There's love to celebrate. There's answers to prayers to celebrate. There's resurrection to celebrate. There are victories to celebrate. There are changed lives to celebrate. There is an amazing future to celebrate. The list goes on and on. And so let me just close with the words of the psalmist. You have turned my mourning into dancing. Joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of warm mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. And here is where worship and celebration and joy collide. God has done so much for us. God has given us joy and therefore we can't be or surely we shouldn't be silent. We need to be the loudest, most joyful, most party-minded people on this planet back to St. Augustine do you know just go out this week and be a hallelujah from head to foot to every single person you meet just be a joy to meet rather than a pain in the head (laughs) that's not me making a comment about anybody here that's me just making a comment about my experience of lots of Christians Uh, let's stand together and sing I will worship 
with all of my heart. I will praise you with all of my strength. I will seek you all of my days. I follow you all of my ways. I give you all my worship. And it is a choice. It's an act of your will to do this because you alone I long to worship. Trace that trail. Discover the object of your worship. If it's not God, replace what is there with the one true God.